Book the Third, Chapter Fourteen, Part One of Armadale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nadine Kerpoulet. Armadale by Wilkie Collins. Fourteen. Miss Gwilt's Diary. All Saints Therese, New Road, London, July 28th, Monday night. I can hardly hold my head up, I am so tired. But in my situation, I dare not trust anything to memory. Before I go to bed, I must write my customary record of the events of the day. So far, the turn of luck in my favor, it was long enough before it took the turn, seems likely to continue. I succeeded in forcing Armadale, the brute required nothing short of forcing, to leave Thorpe Ambrose for London, alone in the same carriage with me, before all the people in the station. There was a full attendance of dealers in small scandal, all staring hard at us, and all evidently drawing their own conclusions. Either I know nothing of Thorpe Ambrose, all the town gossip is busy enough by this time with Mr. Armadale and Miss Gwilt. I had some difficulty with him for the first half-hour after we left the station. The guard, delightful man, I felt so grateful to him, had shut us up together in expectation of half a crown at the end of the journey. Armadale was suspicious of me, and he showed it plainly. Little by little I tamed my wild beast, partly by taking care to display no curiosity about his journey to town, and partly by interesting him on the subject of his friend Midwinter, dwelling especially on the opportunity that now offered itself for a reconciliation between them. I kept harping on this string till I set his tongue going and made him amuse me as a gentleman is bound to do when he has the honor of escorting a lady on a long railway journey. What little mind he has was full, of course, of his own affairs and Miss Milroy's. No words can express the clumsiness he showed in trying to talk about himself without taking me into his confidence or mentioning Miss Milroy's name. He was going to London, he gravely informed me, on a matter of indescribable interest to him. It was a secret for the present, but he hoped to tell it me soon. It had made a great difference already in the way in which he looked at the slanders spoken of him in Thorpe Ambrose. He was too happy to care what the scandal-mongers said of him now, and he should soon stop their mouth by appearing in a new character that would surprise them all. So he blundered on, with the firm persuasion that he was keeping me quite in the dark. It was hard not to laugh when I thought of my anonymous letter on its way to the Major but I managed to control myself, though, I must own, with some difficulty. As the time wore on, I began to feel a terrible excitement. The position was, I think, a little too much for me. There I was, alone with him, talking in the most innocent, easy, familiar manner, and having it in my mind all the time to brush his life out of my way when the moment comes, as I might brush a stain off my gown. It made my blood leap and my cheeks flush. 
I caught myself laughing once or twice much louder than I ought, and long before we got to London I thought it desirable to put my face in hiding by pulling down my veil. There was no difficulty, on reaching the terminus, in getting him to come in the cab with me to the hotel where Midwinter is staying. He was all eagerness to be reconciled with his dear friend. Principally, I have no doubt, because he wants the dear friend to lend a helping hand to the elopement. The real difficulty lay, of course, with Midwinter. My sudden journey to London had allowed me no opportunity of writing to combat his superstitious conviction that he and his former friend are better apart. I thought it wise to leave Armadale in the cab at the door and to go into the hotel by myself to pave the way for him. Fortunately, Midwinter had not gone out. His delight at seeing me some days sooner than he had hoped had something infectious in it, I suppose. Pooh! I may own the truth to my own diary. There was a moment when I forgot everything in the world but our two selves as completely as he did. I felt as if I was back in my teens, until I remembered the loud in the cab at the door. And then I was five-and-thirty again in an instant. His face altered when he heard who was below, and what it was I wanted of him. He looked not angry, but distressed. He yielded, however, before long, not to my reasons, for I gave him none, but to my entreaties. His old fondness for his friend might possibly have had some share in persuading him against his will. But my own opinion is that he acted entirely under the influence of his fondness for me. I waited in the sitting-room while he went down to the door, so I knew nothing of what passed between them when they first saw each other again. But, oh, the difference between the two men when the interval had passed, and they came upstairs together and joined me? They were both agitated, but in such different ways. The hateful Armadale, so loud and red and clumsy, the dear, lovable Midwinter, so pale and quiet, with such a gentleness in his voice when he spoke, and such tenderness in his eyes every time they turned my way. Armadale overlooked me as completely as if I had not been in the room. He referred to me over and over again in the conversation. He constantly looked at me to see what I thought, while I sat in my corner silently watching them. He wanted to go with me and see me safe to my lodgings, and spare me all trouble with the cabman and the luggage. When I thanked him and declined, Armadale looked unaffectedly relieved at the prospect of seeing my back turned and of having his friend all to himself. I left him, with his awkward elbows half over the table, scrolling a letter, no doubt to Miss Miroy, and shouting to the waiter that he wanted a bed at the hotel. I had calculated on his staying, as a matter of course, where he found his friend staying. It was pleasant to find my anticipations realized, and to know that I have as good as got him now under my own eye. After promising to let Midwinter know where he could see me tomorrow, I went away in the cab to hunt for lodgings for myself. With some difficulty I have succeeded in getting an endurable sitting-room and bedroom in this house, where the people are perfect strangers to me. Having paid a week's rent in advance, for I naturally preferred dispensing with a reference, 
I find myself with exactly three shillings and nine pence left in my purse. It is impossible to ask Midwinter for money, after he has already paid Mrs. Oldershaw's note of hand. I must borrow something to-morrow on my watch and chain at the pawnbroker's. Enough to keep me going for a fortnight is all, and more than all, that I want. In that time, or in less than that time, Midwinter will have married me. July twenty-ninth, two o'clock. Early in the morning, I sent a line to Midwinter, telling him that he would find me here at three this afternoon. That done, I devoted the morning to two errands of my own. One is hardly worth mentioning. It was only to raise money on my watch and chain. I got more than I expected, and more, even supposing I buy myself one or two little things in the way of cheap summer dress, than I am at all likely to spend before the wedding day. The other errand was of a far more serious kind. It led me into an attorney's office. I was well aware last night, though I was too weary to put it down in my diary, that I could not possibly see Midwinter this morning, in the position he now occupies toward me, without at least appearing to take him into my confidence on the subject of myself and my circumstances. Excepting one necessary consideration which I must be careful not to overlook, there is not the least difficulty in my drawing on my invention and telling him any story I please, for thus far I have told no story to anybody. Midwinter went away to London before it was possible to approach the subject. As to the Milroys, having provided them with the customary reference, I could fortunately keep them at arm's length on all questions relating purely to myself. And lastly, when I effected my reconciliation with Armadale on the drive in front of the house, he was fool enough to be too generous to let me defend my character. When I had expressed my regret for having lost my temper and threatened Miss Milroy, and when I had accepted his assurance that my pupil had never done or meant to do me any injury, he was too magnanimous to hear a word on the subject of my private affairs. Thus I am quite unfettered by any former assertions of my own, and I may tell any story I please, with the one drawback hinted at already in the shape of a restraint. Whatever I may invent in the way of pure fiction, I must preserve the character in which I have appeared at Thorpe Ambrose. For, with the notoriety that is attached to my other name, I have no other choice but to marry Midwinter in my maiden name as Miss Gwilt. This was the consideration that took me into the lawyer's office. I felt that I must inform myself, before I saw Midwinter later in the day, of any awkward consequences that may follow the marriage of a widow if she conceals her widow's name. Knowing of no other professional person whom I could trust, I went boldly to the lawyer who had my interests in his charge, at that terrible pastime in my life, which I have more reason than ever to shrink from thinking of now. He was astonished, and, as I could plainly detect, by no means pleased to see me. I had hardly opened my lips before he said he hoped I was not consulting him again, with a strong emphasis on the word, on my own account. I took the hint, and put the question I had come to ask, 
in the interests of that accommodating personage on such occasions, an absent friend. The lawyer evidently saw through it at once, but he was sharp enough to turn my friend to good account on his side. He said he would answer the question as a matter of courtesy toward a lady represented by myself, but he must make it a condition that this consultation of him by deputy should go no further. I accepted his terms, for I really respected the clever manner in which he contrived to keep me at arm's length without violating the laws of good breeding. In two minutes I heard what he had to say, mastered it in my own mind, and went out. Short as it was, the consultation told me everything I wanted to know. I risked nothing by marrying Midwinter in my maiden instead of my widow's name. The marriage is a good marriage in this way, that it can only be set aside if my husband finds out the imposture and takes proceedings to invalidate our marriage in my lifetime. That is the lawyer's answer in the lawyer's own words. It relieves me at once, in this direction at any rate, of all apprehension about the future. The only imposture my husband will ever discover, and then only if he happens to be on the spot, is the imposture that puts me in the place and gives me the income of Armadale's widow, and by that time I shall have invalidated my own marriage forever. Half past two. Midwinter will be here in half an hour. I must go and ask my glass how I look. I must rouse my invention and make up my little domestic romance. Am I feeling nervous about it? Something flutters in the place where my heart used to be. At five-and-thirty, too, and after such a life as mine. Six o'clock. He has just gone. The day for our marriage is a day determined on already. I have tried to rest and recover myself. I can't rest. I have come back to these leaves. There is much to be written in them, since Midwinter has been here, that concerns me nearly. Let me begin with what I hate most to remember, and so be the sooner done with it. Let me begin with the paltry string of falsehoods which I told him about my family troubles. What can be the secret of this man's hold on me? How is it that he alters me so that I hardly know myself again? I was like myself in the railway carriage yesterday with Armadale. It was surely frightful to be talking to the living man, through the whole of that long journey, with the knowledge in me all the while that I meant to be his widow. And yet I was only excited and fevered. Hour after hour I never shrunk once from speaking to Armadale. But the first trumpery falsehood I told Midwinter turned me cold when I saw that he believed it. I felt a dreadful, hysterical choking in the throat when he entreated me not to reveal my troubles. And once, I am horrified when I think of it, once, when he said, If I could love you more dearly, I should love you more dearly now, I was within a hair-breadth of turning traitor to myself. I was on the very point of crying out to him, Lies! All lies! I'm a fiend in human shape! Marry the wretchedest creature that prowls the streets, and you will marry a better woman than me. Yes, the seeing his eyes moisten, the hearing his voice tremble, while I was deceiving him, shook me in that way. I have seen handsomer men by hundreds, cleverer men by dozens, 
What can this man have roused in me? Is it love? I thought I had loved, never to love again. Does a woman not love when the man's hardness to her drives her to drown herself? A man drove me to that last despair in days gone by. Did all my misery at that time come from something which was not love? Have I lived to be five and thirty, and am I only feeling now what love really is? Now when it is too late? Ridiculous! Besides, what is the use of asking? What do I know about it? What does any woman ever know? The more we think of it, the more we deceive ourselves. I wish I had been born an animal. My beauty might have been of some use to me, then. It might have got me a good master. Here is the whole page of my diary field, and nothing written yet that is of the slightest use to me. My miserable made-up story must be told over again here, while the incidents are fresh in my memory. Or how am I to refer to it consistently on after occasions when I may be obliged to speak of it again? There was nothing new in what I told him. It was the commonplace rubbish of the circulating libraries. A dead father, a lost fortune, vagabond brothers whom I dread ever seeing again, a bedridden mother dependent on my exertions. No, I can't write it down. I hate myself, I despise myself, when I remember that he believed it because I said it, that he was distressed by it because it was my story. I will face the chances of contradicting myself, I will risk discovery and ruin, anything rather than dwell on that contemptible deception of him a moment longer. My lies came to an end at last, and then he talked to me of himself and of his prospects. Oh, what a relief it was to turn to that at the time! What a relief it is to come to it now! He has accepted the offer about which he wrote to me at Thorpe Ambrose, and he is now engaged as occasional foreign correspondent to the new newspaper. His first destination is Naples. I wish it had been some other place, for I have certain past associations with Naples which I am not at all anxious to renew. It has been arranged that he is to leave England not later than the eleventh of next month. By that time, therefore, I, who am to go with him, must go with him as his wife. There is not the slightest difficulty about the marriage. All this part of it is so easy that I begin to dread an accident. The proposal to keep the thing strictly private, which it might have embarrassed me to make, comes from Midwinter. Marrying me in his own name, the name that he has kept concealed from every living creature but myself and Mr. Brock, it is his interest that not a soul who knows him should be present at the ceremony, his friend Armadale least of all. He has been a week in London already. When another week has passed, he proposes to get the license, and to be married in the church belonging to the parish in which the hotel is situated. These are the only necessary formalities. I had but to say yes, he told me, and to feel no further anxiety about the future. I said yes with such a devouring anxiety about the future that I was afraid he would see it. What minutes the next few minutes were, when he whispered delicious words to me, while I hid my face on his breast. I recovered myself first, 
and led him back to the subject of Armadale, having my own reasons for wanting to know what they said to each other after I had left them yesterday. The manner in which Midwinter replied showed me that he was speaking under the restraint of respecting a confidence placed in him by his friend. Long before he had done, I detected what the confidence was. Armadale had been consulting him, exactly as I anticipated, on the subject of the elopement. Although he appears to have remonstrated against taking the girl secretly away from her home, Midwinter seems to have felt some delicacy about speaking strongly, remembering, widely different as the circumstances are, that he was contemplating a private marriage himself. I gathered, at any rate, that he had produced very little effect by what he had said, and that Armadale had already carried out his absurd intention of consulting the head clerk in the office of his London lawyers. Having got as far as this, Midwinter put the question which I felt must come sooner or later. He asked if I objected to our engagement being mentioned, in the strictest secrecy, to his friend. I will answer, he said, for Allan's respecting any confidence that I place in him, and I will undertake, when the time comes, so to use my influence over him as to prevent his being present at the marriage, and discovering, what he must never know, that my name is the same as his own. It would help me, he went on, to speak more strongly about the object that has brought him to London, if I can require the frankness with which he has spoken of his private affairs to me, by the same frankness on my side. I had no choice but to give the necessary permission, and I gave it. It is of the utmost importance to me to know what course Major Milroy takes with his daughter and Armadale after receiving my anonymous letter, and, unless I invite Armadale's confidence in some way, I am nearly certain to be kept in the dark. Let him once be trusted with the knowledge that I am to be Midwinter's wife, and what he tells his friend about his love affair, he will tell me. When it had been understood between us that Armadale was to be taken into our confidence, we began to talk about ourselves again. How the time flew! What a sweet enchantment it was to forget everything in his arms! How he loves me! Oh, poor fellow, how he loves me! I have promised to meet him tomorrow morning in the Regent's Park. The less he is seen here, the better. The people in this house are strangers to me, certainly, but it may be wise to consult appearances, as if I were still at Thorpe Ambrose, and not to produce the impression, even on their minds, that Midwinter is engaged to me. If any after-inquiries are made, when I have run my grand risk, the testimony of my London landlady might be testimony worth having. That wretched old Bashwood! Writing of Thorpe Ambrose reminds me of him. What will he say when the town gossip tells him that Armadale has taken me to London in a carriage reserved for ourselves? It really is too absurd in a man of Bashwood's age and appearance to presume to be in love. July 30th News at last. Armadale has heard from Miss Milroy. My anonymous letter has produced its effect. The girl is removed from Thorpe Ambrose already, and the whole project of the elopement is blown to the winds at once and forever. 
This was the substance of what Midwinter had to tell me when I met him in the park. I affected to be excessively astonished, and to feel the necessary feminine longing to know all the particulars. Not that I expect to have my curiosity satisfied, I added, for Mr. Armadale and I are little better than mere acquaintances, after all. You are far more than a mere acquaintance in Allan's eyes, said Midwinter. Having your permission to trust him, I have already told him how near and dear you are to me. Hearing this, I thought it desirable, before I put any questions about Miss Milroy, to attend to my own interests first, and to find out what effect the announcement of my coming marriage had produced on Armadale. It was possible that he might be still suspicious of me, and that the inquiries he made in London, at Mrs. Milroy's instigation, might be still hanging on his mind. "'Did Mr. Armadale seem surprised?' I asked, "'when you told him of our engagement, and when you said it was to be kept a secret from everybody?' "'He seemed greatly surprised,' said Midwinter, "'to hear that we were going to be married. "'All he said when I told him it must be kept a secret "'was that he supposed there were reasons on your side "'for making the marriage a private one.' "'What did you say?' I inquired, "'when he made that remark.' I said the reasons were on my side, answered Midwinter, and I thought it right to add, considering that Allan had allowed himself to be misled by the ignorant distrust of you at Thorpe Ambrose, that you had confided to me the whole of your sad family story, and that you had amply justified your unwillingness under any ordinary circumstances to speak of your private affairs. I breathed freely again. He had said just what was wanted, just in the right way. "'Thank you,' I said, "'for putting me right in your friend's estimation. "'Does he wish to see me?' I added, "'by way of getting back to the other subject of Miss Mirai and the elopement. "'He is longing to see you,' returned Midwinter. "'He is in great distress, poor fellow. "'Distress which I have done my best to soothe, "'but which, I believe, would yield far more readily to a woman's sympathy than to mine. "'Where is he now?' I asked. He was at the hotel, and to the hotel I instantly proposed that we should go. It is a busy, crowded place, and, with my veil down, I have less fear of compromising myself there than at my quiet lodgings. Besides, it is vitally important to me to know what Armadale does next, under this total change of circumstances, for I must so control his proceedings as to get him away from England if I can. We took a cab. Such was my eagerness to sympathize with the heartbroken lover that we took a cab. End of part one.